Well, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders, pastor here at Covenant Life Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're very grateful that you're here. Um, I know several people are out sick today uh, or traveling, and so we're glad that you could be with us. If you have your Bibles or your devices, uh, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, and uh, per usual, we'll get there in a little bit. Don't worry. Uh, I'm not going to get started. I, I, you might not want to read what we're going to talk about yet, so uh, you might want to just get surprised. Um, <clears throat> we live in a culture where anything goes. Uh, follow your heart, they tell us, as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. But there's a massive defect in that sort of thinking. Our hearts are not trustworthy. <laughs> um, and they are not good barometers for all that is good. In a culture where anything goes, each one gets to decide what is good and evil for themselves. But as followers of Jesus, we are not moral relativists. We believe in absolute truth. In fact, in him who is the absolute truth a triune God who is our transcendent moral authority. And the more we align ourselves with God as our Father through the sacrificial gift and redemption of Jesus, his Son, and receive the Holy Spirit that he has sent and poured out upon us, we find ourselves maturing into a life more submitted to him as sovereign Lord Savior and King and guide and comforter and thriving in, as exiles really in this world of relativity, relativistic views, we, we thrive and flourish even in this type of culture. Now there's a word for that type of experience, it's holiness and I realize that's a scary word for some and an outdated word for others. But as his followers, we are called into a life of holiness where the whole person, our whole person is centered on him and not on ourselves. That we're centered on him, that he is the center of our lives. We're not at the center, he is. Holiness is, in the Hebrew, is the word kadosh, and it means to be cut off or separate from everything else. To be holy is to be in a class all your own. It's to be unique. It's to be distinct from all others. Kadosh also means to be entirely morally pure, all the time and in every way. And so it's very clear to us with those two definitions that there is only one who is holy, and that is God. He is holy. There is no other like our God. And yet, if you read the Bible at all, you will see a repeated command given to us in the scripture. And here it is. Be holy as I am holy. Now, that's an interesting command given what we just realized that no one's holy but him. This be holy as I am holy is what the ancient church fathers called theosis 
or literally deification, which sounds a little over the top to me, (laughs) feels a little questionable deification, but more simply put, it is godliness. It is God-likeness. It is our being like him. It's the transformative process of being with God and becoming like him. In a theological sense, being holy means being set apart for a special purpose and dedicated to God. And in that way, it is not only addressing our morality, it is addressing our consecration. Now, If you go back and read the book of Leviticus, which my Bible reading plan just took me through a few weeks ago, uh, that's a fun book to read, isn't it? Uh, If you're not laughing, that means you don't read the Bible enough. I'm I'm sorry, that was a little accusatory, wasn't it? Uh, If you read Leviticus, you can read about some holy pots and holy pans that are used in the tabernacle. And those holy pots and holy pans are used exclusively in the worship of God. They, they weren't holy, however, because they were more moral than all the other pots and pans in town. Uh, like all those Teflon pans. I mean, those are not holy, obviously. Uh, they weren't holy because they were more perfect or moral. They were holy because they were set apart and dedicated to the service of God. And so when we hear this scripture, be holy, that is largely what, they are, what we are being told, that we're to be set apart and dedicated to the service of God. We're to be holy as he is holy. As followers of Jesus, that is our commission and that is the end result for all of us, that we might be like him that we might be with him, united with him, and in ever-increasing fashion become like him. I want to look at one aspect this morning, one part of that call to be set apart, to be dedicated to God in a culture where just anything goes. And it's the area of sexuality. Now, that's a real perfect message for Mother's Day, don't you think? My father-in-law, who was a pastor here for 27 years, one Mother's Day spoke on the wrath of God. And I'm just trying to beat him. So sexuality is our topic for today. I sent it out in the email, so you should have been warned. Uh, And I see very few smaller children here, so that's a good thing. You all took heed of my warning. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians 6, chapter Chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, all things are lawful for me. It's in parentheses. The Corinthian Christians seem to have this attitude that I can live however I want to because all things are lawful for me. It's all good. Um, And Paul is quoting them here. That's why it's in quotations. He's quoting, he's he's repeating back to them what he's heard they are saying. All things are lawful for me. That's how I would do it. 
little snarky, a little, you know. Uh-huh. All things are lawful for, for me. And Paul's rebuting, I mean, rebutting, not rebuting, rebutting that claim. He is, he's saying, no, that's not true. Uh, and he, he goes on to say that when you live as if everything is permissible for you, then you are dominated by compulsion, by addiction, and ultimately the tyranny of sin. Look what verse 13 says. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now again, notice the parentheses. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is also something they were saying. In fact, this was probably a slogan that was said throughout Corinth, much like the hashtags and slogans that we hear today, like love wins and celebrate diversity and trans rights are human rights. I'm trying to be very careful here. It helps us to understand exactly what philosophy influenced Corinth because it's only about 50 miles south of Athens where Plato and the other Greek philosophers were very influential in all of Greek culture. And the Romans picked this Greek culture up. And Plato taught that there was a spiritual world and that was, that, that was a good and eternal world and that there was a material world which was evil and temporary. Plato said the body is the prison house of the soul. And he defined the soul as the inner essence of the real you. And so your body just housed the real you. And so like Greeks all around the region, some Corinthian Christians had concluded that it doesn't really matter what I do with my body since it's not the real me. It's it's like my body's impulse for sex is no different than my body's desire for food when I'm hungry. I'm hungry, I eat. I'm thirsty, I drink. I get sleepy, I take a nap. I get aroused, I have sex. And so this philosophy was, was quite broad around the Roman world at this day. And the Christians in Corinth who had come to Christ brought with them a lot of the trappings and the cultural impulse and the, and the philosophy of the day, just like the church does today. We don't come in fully sanctified. That is an ongoing process. We are justified when we accept Christ and believe on him with our heart. And we are fully justified in his sight, not because we did anything good, but because he did. And that's what makes it good news. It's what he did. It's not good information. It's good news. Jesus died for your sins so that you could be justified before God. Amen. Thank you. So this had crept into Corinth and to the church and to how they lived their lives. By the way, we have very similar philosophies and ideologies. I spoke about this a few weeks ago that have also crept into the church. We quite often don't completely turn our back on God. We just add things to him. 
We just bring in and mix things with him. Just like they brought a golden calf and then said, we're gonna have a feast festival to Yahweh in the same sentence. Whether they were trying to replace Yahweh with that calf or whether they're just trying to add the calf to him as a visual representation, regardless, it was idolatry. And when we mix things with our faith in Christ Jesus, we're doing the same thing. Oh, I'm preaching now. Look how Paul responds to this slogan of the day in Corinth. Verse 13, the second part. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says some really important things in those verses. And I'm gonna break them into five areas. First, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And, and, then, he, and then he says, and the Lord for the body. Now the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography or pornographic from. And your Bible might say it as fornication, which is really not altogether uh, all fully encompassing. And quite frankly, sexual immorality is a, is a stretch too. Uh, what porneia was in first century Greek language was kind of a catch-all, a miscellaneous word that included any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, you just let your mind wander if you want. I'm trying to be very careful about what I say and don't say today. But in this case, Paul is saying sexual immorality, porneia, and then he uses a specific example of that when he says, when he brings up sex with a prostitute. And you're like, well, where did that come from? Wow, Paul, is that what the first thing that comes to your mind? There's a lot of other sexual sins I could think of. But I personally think that he uses that example because Corinth was famous for its sacred prostitution. You see, there was a temple to Aphrodite that was up on a tall hill overlooking Corinth. And it was said that they had a thousand prostitutes that would be available and would worship Aphrodite by sexual activity, both male and female. It was a part of the Corinthian culture for prostitution to be available in all areas. 
And so Paul is making it clear that as a Christ, that as a follower of Christ, that's not what you're to engage in. You're to be holy, set apart, dedicated to his service. The second thing Paul says is that our bodies <laughs> are important. I, I'm having a, a hard time here because one of my daughters, when she was little, used to con used to confuse the word bottom with body. And so she would say, my body is hurting. And we knew that there was something more down in this region that was hurting. And so when I hear the word body, I can just hear her in two-year-old language saying that. So I'm trying to, <laughs> I have to say it to you so I can get it out of my head. So I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry to whichever one of my daughters did it. And I'm trying not to bring her out. Okay. Boy, I am really deep in it right now. Can you tell? Just keep on digging. Just keep getting, you know. Woo. Okay, the second thing is that Paul says our bodies are important. Yeah. Jesus came back from the dead, not in a disembodied state, but in a body. And by the way, when he returns again, we are gonna be given new bodies. And he makes this statement. He says, our bodies are members of Christ. He didn't say our spirits. He didn't say uh, our, our beliefs, our doctrine. He said our bodies. Our bodies are members of Christ. Now, Paul and Jesus elevate the view of the body. A lot of religions dissect them. They they. They disassociate with them, like Plato. No, what you have out here is just, oh, it's gross and nasty. But what's in here, that's beautiful. And just worry about this and let the body do what it's gonna do. But your, your pure self over here is gonna be okay. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Paul does. We are integrated and our bodies matter. What we do to our bodies matter. How we treat our bodies today matters. That goes for whether it's sexual engagement or whether it's eating too much or whether it's not exercising. It goes, it matters. Now, it's not the only thing because this corruptibility, this that is corruptible, this is, uh, it's going to have to put on incorruptibility. But nonetheless, we can't diminish God's view of our bodies. He says, our bodies are members of Christ. Third, Paul says sex is not just a physical act. It's the fusion of two souls where the two become one flesh. And he uses language all the way back from Genesis when he says the two shall become one flesh. Now that word joined in verse 16 means to bind, to cement, or to glue. Sex glues you together. If a woodworker takes some carpenter's glue and glues two pieces of wood together, where they are glued together becomes stronger than the wood itself. And if you take a tool and pry those two pieces apart, the glue will not break, but the wood will. The wood will splinter and break into pieces, and that's what happens with sexual sin. It breaks us apart 
And we live a splintered life until the Lord heals and restores us, which he will. Fourth, Paul says to flee from sexual immorality. And I want you to imagine yourself like Joseph in Potiphar's house. And you know the story, or if you don't, you can go back and read it in Genesis. Joseph is there and Potiphar's wife is um, kind of throwing herself at him. She is enticing him. She is uh, wanting him to sleep with her. And he continually refuses and she just lunges at him and he flees and he gets out of there so quick that he leaves behind his cloak. And that is the reaction that we should have when we face sexual immorality. Get the heck out of there. Flee. Don't cozy up to it. Don't downplay it. Don't coddle it. Don't flirt with it. Flee. Run to Jesus. And I don't have time to expand on all of these things. I'm trying to get through this part. But there's so much that could be said there. Finally, Paul says this. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And that, that's such a powerful sentence. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's within you. His spirit is residing. When you accept Christ, the spirit is there to allow that to happen. You can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. And, and then there's also an impartation, a pouring out, an, an infilling of the spirit that we read about in several instances in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit is something that resides within us and it was given to us by God. Now, why would you take a gift like that and sully it up in places you shouldn't be? You're taking the treasure, the, pre the third person of the Trinity into places and experiences that you don't belong. You have, de you have degraded the where you've gone and you have not elevated what he is and who he is inside of you. The focus needs to be on, Lord, I, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where you reside in me. It's not your mouth. It's not your mind. It's not your heart, but your body. And this is the crux of the message. What we do with our bodies matters, especially because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Now that is a collective piece as well, but we can see it individually in that the Spirit is given to each one as well as to us corporately. He lives here. He's taken up residence in my body, in your body. Act like it. If you give a gift to your child and it's a precious thing to you and you watch them treat it poorly or mistreat it or don't take care of it or use it for the wrong reason, you're not gonna be happy. What do you think God thinks when he sees you doing things when he has given you the best gift you could ever have, which is the Holy Spirit residing inside of you? Just think about that the next time you're tempted to let your eyes wander or your actions do something or your fantasies to grow crazy. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Breathe, Chris. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. This is the crux. 
We still think we're our own. We still think we own ourselves. No, you don't belong to yourself when you're in Christ Jesus. He bought you with the price. So, and he concludes, glorify God with your body. Now, what we should realize is that these teachings of Paul, which came from Jesus himself, led to a sexual revolution in early Rome time. In the Roman world, there was all sorts of permissiveness around sex. I'm not gonna go into all the details about what was allowed and what was fine with, they were fine with it. But what the church lived by and how they lived led to a sexual revolution in that day. Not the kind of sexual revolution that we experienced 60 years ago in the 1960s where everyone demanded total freedom from the bondage of marriage and, and even argued with the realities of biology. This first sexual revolution was an elevation of sexuality, not a degradation of it. It was raising it up in such a way that helped people see this is a gift from God and we should act differently because of it. Tim Keller put it very, very well. Give this quote. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent in sex, which was not done in the Roman world. You didn't need to. You wanted sex with someone, you went and bought them. If they were a slave, they, got, they had to do it. And so it introduced the very idea of consent in sex and it made sex not, more, not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those who have more power, but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship with us. This is a higher, not lower view of sex. Modern culture's sexual logic that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. Wow. He concludes, it leads to fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside marriage is ultimately transactional and so it cannot finally be intimate. Wow. You see how that's the degradation of what's happening in our culture by transactionalizing sex. And yet God's made us for intimacy with him and with the, with the person that God uh, brings into our life and we enter into a covenant with them. And the more we peer into their eyes and submitted to the Lord, the deeper the intimacy goes. But the less we do that and look around and try to find our satisfaction in everything else, the less intimate and the more transactional it becomes. When we get a better grasp of all of this, we will not only see sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed between a husband and wife, but it's also pointing us to our soul's desire for intimacy and communion with Christ. For not even the best marriage can satisfy completely. The Catholic theologian Karl Rayner said, in this life, all our symphonies remain unfinished. 
only life with God can deeply satisfy our deepest ache. The best way to encourage a biblical ethic of sex and marriage is by living it out ourselves, drawing others to Christ by showing them a light so lovely and a life so abundant and a love so eternal that they will earnestly desire to know the source of that life, light, and love. Or as Scott Sauls wrote, rather than condemning sex in the city, what if we made it our chief task to simply be the city on the hill Jesus intended? Most Christians go around thinking it's our job to condemn all that's happening out there. I would dare say that our job is to pay more attention to what's happening in here. Because if I am more faithful to follow in what God has called me to do, and my wife and I are as a married couple and with our family and all of us as families and as single adults and as children in our community, if we are more inclined to reflect on him, then we will reflect to them out there his way that is better. We don't have to judge. We don't have to bash people in the head. We don't have to argue with them or try to win a debate on Twitter. We just do what Jesus called us to do. And the light and the life and the love will show through. It'll mean removing the plank from our own eyes, dying to our own sin, and taking captive our own thoughts, not objectifying God's image in others, and not acting like divorce is always an option. Far too many Christians think that it is. It will require renewed vision for our marriages where we nurture faithfulness and forgiveness and where we cultivate companionship and conversation, living face-to-face in intimacy and side-by-side in mission. And it will also mean a robust view of singleness where we affirm that being unmarried and chaste, just like Paul and Jesus were, is not a curse. It is a noble and fruitful calling. And as Paul said, it is far better because it allows you and frees you to devote yourself fully to God and to his purpose. The church must be a family for everyone, single, married, Divorced, widowed, opposite sex attracted, same sex attracted. We should be a place where spiritual friendships are as deep and as loyal as Jonathan and David's were. A place of healing from the brokenness we've all experienced at one point or another. And there is healing for what ails you. There is healing for what pit you fell into. There is redemption and deliverance and there is wholeness available. Trust me, I know. We have got to find the healing in places where our brokenness have prevailed and the splintering we've created and we cannot afford to judge. We must listen and disciple. We cannot afford to scold We must speak words of hope and forgiveness. And we cannot forsake the one who is struggling. We must 
forever remain true. Where we see a brother or sister struggling, where we see them even having fallen, if there is repentance, then there is hope. And if they repent, then we're commissioned by Paul in Galatians 6 to restore those who have fallen with a spirit of gentleness. Most importantly, and Scott Saul says this in a letter that I read, let's renew our focus on the marriage, the marriage of the bridegroom and his bride. And let us focus on that because we are all a part of that union, the mystical union between Jesus and his bride. No matter your marital status here on earth, union with him through faith makes you as married and complete as you'll ever be. From the moment we believe, we are our beloved's and our beloved is ours. There is hope for a sexually broken world. There is hope for a sexually broken Christian. There is hope for everyone who will turn to him and see that his way is the way. May we be that kind of community in a culture where anything goes. Amen. This is my lovely wife, and she's going to share with us for a few minutes, and then we're going to pray for you. This is going to make you uncomfortable, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mm. Thank you for telling us the truth. I think these are topics that most people are uncomfortable with. But God has a perspective on them, and we should know what it is. Somebody said yesterday at the women's gathering that sometimes when they're watching a crisis unfold in someone's life, they really want to be able to give an answer. But sometimes that answer is more for them than it is for the other person. They want the comfort of knowing there's an answer. It's true. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to think of someone that you know who has been splintered by immorality, any form. Today's message is for you to get clear about what God says about that. Mm -hmm so that when you come alongside to love them or to receive forgiveness, if you're the person who's been splintered, that you have absolute confidence how God feels about them and what he's willing to offer. Yes. Last thing. Yeah, go for it. If any of you are on social media, you may have seen this picture that I'm going to describe to you, and the person who posted it does not know the Lord. But it's a picture of um, someone sitting outside, and they have a small glass of water, and they pick up a spoonful of dirt and twigs and stuff and put it in the water. 
and then they spend a considerable amount of time with the same spoon trying to get all of the dirt and twigs out of the water, right. and it doesn't work. Yeah. And so then they take a really big pitcher of clean water and pour it into the cup until the cup overflows, and the overflowing water pushes out all the dirt and the twigs. If you've got dirt and twigs in your life, you are not going to get rid of them by going after them with all of your passion and a spoon. You are going to have to fill up and be overflowing with really good water. And so my prayer for us today is that if you have dirt in your glass, you will receive the overflowing water of God. That's right. And if you're loving someone who's got dirt in their glass, you will be overflowing water for them. Yes. Wow. We're going to pray. Father, you are the God of all truth. And we need all of it to be formed in your image. And so we thank you for Chris's obedience to tell us the truth, the truth of who we are, the truth of who you are, and to remember and believe that your truth wins out over everything. Yes, it does. Only you can speak words of conviction that are full of love. And when you speak, everything we need to obey is available. Everything we need. Yes. So, Father, individually, we receive the rushing water of your Holy Spirit that will flood us like the cleansing of the Aegean stables, Mm -hmm. reaching every part, Mm -hmm. pushing out what does not belong. That's right. We receive your love that can bind up broken hearts and splintered wood. But we don't stop there, Lord, because you didn't stop there. We want to be living water for people who are dirty and damaged, not in ways that make us superior or draw attention to ourselves, but in ways that exalt you, that declare the good news, that bring hope and life and love. Father, thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that makes this possible. Yes, Lord. Receive us, wash us, set us apart so that we can be useful. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord.
if you're sitting here today need, and you need healing from a splintered past, or you need the water to be poured in so you can be flushed clean. Yes. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody, but you know where you are. And just say right now quietly, Lord, that's me. That's me. Here I am, Lord. I need what only you can do. I've made a mess of it. Or maybe I've been the victim of someone else's mess. But I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he has come to restore and to heal and to bind up the brokenhearted. And to look us in the eye and say, go, I don't judge you. Go and sin no more. And then give us the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in that obedience. Lord, I pray for all those that are hearing this today and may hear it later. If that's them, if that's where they are, may your spirit do a work that is transformative and abundant and overwhelming. Let them walk in the light with someone that's discipling them, someone they're walking closely with, a pastor, a friend they can trust. And in that place, receive the healing and the binding up of their wounds. And thank you, Lord, for not discarding those that are broken and weak, those that have splintered their lives. Thank you, Lord, for being the God who redeems and restores. Do that for your people. And make us, oh God, a community of holiness, set apartness, peculiarity, distinct and different from the culture around us, not so we can be holier than thou, but so that our lives can demonstrate the light and life and love that the whole world needs. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.